Well, last week in our discussion, we began um, talking about, uh, we shifted away uh, from critical theory and started talking about postmodernism. And uh, we saw uh, many of the similarities uh, between the two up front. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about making sure we understand what postmodernism is, and then we'll start to get into some of the more specific ideas. And we're, we're getting closer and closer to being able to see how these two theories come together, and as they come together, uh, what the challenges are uh, specifically related to who we are and what we do as the church. Um, so uh, one of the things we talked about last week was the challenges of post, of uh, the Enlightenment and how there were good things that came out of the Enlightenment that we should be thankful for. There were many challenges to the church that came out of the Enlightenment or the modern, uh, the modern period of history. And so postmodernism is a response to that. But what did we say? What, what is postmodernism responding to in modernism uh, that they saw as, uh, as ill-fated or uh, falling short of what they were hoping for? What's the response? What are they responding to? Anyone remember? Yeah, right. The idea of absolutes or objectivity. That we could say anything is absolutely true. Or that anything is objectively um, what it is. That we say this is how it is and, and that's how it is. Uh, the idea that uh, we would ever make claims that are absolute. And so instead of making these claims, uh, instead taking on sort of this mentality of, well, that's true for me, but it may not be true for you. I have my truth, you have your truth. Um, is, there anything, is there anything biblical about that kind of reasoning or thinking? Could something be true for me that's not also true for you? Is that a trick question? Some say yes, some say no. Yeah, so there, there you get into things like perspective or opinion, as Dan was saying. Russ? Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. Uh, one, of, one of the challenges you run into as you start thinking about um, or reading through the literature and thinking about postmodernism is this distinction that often is not made. These, these applications of ideas or truth are conflated with what is objective. Or so we take, we take something that's objectively true and say, well, I... Um, I apply that in a different way, and so in doing, what I'm going to say now is I live my truth and you live yours. Well, we're not actually dealing in the realm of truth there, though, are we? We're dealing with, uh, with now opinion and preference. But what is true is still true. Now, again, I could say something, uh, as Charlie said, well, um, I can make what I believe to be an objectively true claim that chocolate is disgusting. I can make that claim. Now, all of you, almost all of you at least, are looking back at me and saying, well, you're objectively an idiot, right? So uh, we have this difference. Now, which one of those is objectively true? Well, something like taste is a preference. 
It's not true or false. It's just a preference. But what is, what is true about that, that we have this, uh, we have this substance uh, that is edible, uh, it's created in a certain way, that comes from a certain plant, and, um, and all of these kinds of things. So the Enlightenment goal was to discover those things. What, what are the things we can look at objectively and say this is true about something? And it's all of those facts about the thing. But then when we take those and we start to talk about them, applying our preferences, the postmodernist says, well, now you're dealing in the area of my truth and your truth. And when we do that, uh, what we're really trying to do as postmodernists is to deconstruct everything related to it. So it's not just a preference now. We're going to ask questions about everything. It's all open for discussion. Yeah. Right, so I have nothing to build that on. So now, um, because I think, so if you look, and we'll get into this uh, more probably in a few weeks, if you look at something like postmodern art, for example. Now, most people are going to look at postmodern art and say, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not even art. However, the postmodernists would say, well, that's your opinion. Now, I'm going to make the argument in a few weeks that there is such a thing as objective beauty. That objective truth applies to beauty. And part of that is uh, the forms of art that we take in, like music and visual art and all of these sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> but as you think about that, this is, this is what's going on. Well, all of those objective standards that we've been taught or that we've seen through the years with regard to what art is... Uh, we need to toss those out and question everything. So now, art is actually the, the urinal hanging on the wall in the men's room. That's art. And in fact, there is a piece of art in a museum, which is an upside-down, upturned urinal um, that was made into a water fountain. And uh, my question to most modernists is, what makes that art and not the urinal in the men's room? What is the difference between the two? And there is none. There is no difference. Um, so when you start to think about all of this, you really, you really begin to understand everything in a postmodernist worldview is up for uh, question. And that is an intentional uh, pursuit. That is intentionally so. Um, one uh, one postmodernist said uh, that the goal of postmodernism is to not seek to find the foundation and the con uh, conditions of truth, but to exercise power for the purpose of social change. And that's, a, that's an important statement because the goal was to, to gain power and influence in order to influence change. At the end of the day, what's true, supposedly, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That's not the goal here. The goal is to take on this role that we can influence what's going on in culture, in society. Uh, Derrida said, Deconstruction never had meaning or interest, at least in my eyes, than as a radicalization. That is to say, within the tradition of a certain Marxism. So they came out very directly and said, Hey, listen, we're Marxists. And we want to deconstruct culture in order to rebuild it in our, in our vision, in our way of thinking. And to do that, we need to gain 
power to have influence. And so one of the ways we're going to do that is to deconstruct everything, to turn it all upside down. Remember the idea of the critical theorists was we're going to introduce chaos into order. We talked about that. Well, postmodernism is very much the same way, but now we're going to do that through power structures. Not just the institutions, but within the institutions, we want the places of power. And we want those um, politically, we want those academically, we want those in the church, you name it, we want them so that we can deconstruct. And so there are various areas then that they have focused their attention for study and critique. But the, the theme of power is this theme of the, the Marxist struggle that we talked about, right? Those who are the victims versus those who are the victimizers. And we hear this language all the time now, and this is uh, primarily because of the influence uh, that postmodernists have had in these places of power. So let me give you an idea. Uh, one uh, one postmodernist, uh, this to me is a shocking quote. Here's what he says. Saddam Hussein is a product of Western departments of state and big companies, just as Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco were born of the peace imposed on their countries by the victors. The Iraqi dictatorship proceeds, as do the others, from the transfer of apori in the capitalist system uh, to vanquish less developed or simply less resistant countries. And so what he is saying is, okay, we have these guys who maybe they're evil and they've done some evil things, uh, but really they're all victims. They're all victims of Western civilization. They wouldn't have been evil and done the evil things that they did if it wasn't for the influence of the West on them. That should be shocking statement to all of us. Saddam Hussein, Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, they didn't do the things they did ultimately because, as we understand from a biblical worldview, it's the depravity and evil that bleeds out of the heart of every man unchecked by the grace of God. No, it's because they were influenced by Western society. And taken to its full extreme, an influence of Western society will make a person desire power and they will use that power to their ends with no limits. That's what they're saying. Um, how do, just thinking on that issue itself, I kind of alluded to it a bit, but how do we think about that or respond to that in, in relationship to what we see in Scripture? What do you think about that, first of all? What, what, what's going on there? Right, that's a good question. Steve's asking, okay, so what about all of the things that happened that we would identify as evil prior to the development of Western civilization? That's a good question, and that's one of the holes we can poke in the argument. Right, so we have the issue of man's nature and depravity, um, there's this issue of moral neutrality, and that's really interesting. We're going to have to talk about that. Yeah, more. Yeah, good. I'm glad you caught that. That's a really important piece to this. Here's what they're saying. These guys, it's not their fault. Think about how many, how many people have you heard try to argue that what a guy like Hitler did, not really his fault. Not many people want to make that argument, right? They want to call you Hitler. 
Uh, that's generally what we hear. Um, if, if I disagree with you, uh, there's, there's actually, I forget what it's called now, there's a rule on the internet. What, anyone know what it is? If, uh, what is it? Yeah, Godwin's Law. And it has to do with uh, how long a conversation goes before one accuses the other of being a Nazi or being Hitler. Um, it doesn't take very long uh, as you dwell in the world of Twitter. Uh, it happens quite rapidly. Um, but that's, everyone inherently knows, because God's law is written on our heart, that what these men I've mentioned have done is evil. There's an objectivity to it. It's evil. It's wrong. And yet, the postmodernists are saying, well, it's not really their fault. We're shifting the blame, as Mark was saying, as Adam points to Eve and says, well, this woman that you gave me, so it's her fault and it's your fault, God. One person whose fault it's not is mine. Same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. That no matter what the structure is, no matter what the uh, governing foundation is, no matter what kind of society we live in, evil people will do evil things in order to gain power and influence over others. There's no escaping that. In fact... That doesn't just happen in society. One of the things uh, I was really uh, involved in the formation of the Reformed Baptist Network when we started our network of churches. And one of the conversations we had was, look, we can write up as many bylaws as we want. We can have as many requirements as we would like on churches that are going to join and individuals that are going to be a part of what we're doing. But at the end of the day, if we as pastors and church leaders don't act like Christians and treat each other in godly ways and seek to live according to the Bible, none of these rules, none of these laws matter at all. And that's the same in the church as it is in a, a society, as it is in our homes, right? At the end of the day, we can, we can design all of the rules and have all the laws that we want, but if people aren't going to... Um, respond to those in a way that they are submitting themselves to something of a, an objective reality, uh, then there is no restraining that. And that, this is what we have seen since the beginning of time. Yeah. Right, so again, what do we have? We have this conflation of influence and environment and personal responsibility. These two factors are important, and we need to consider both of them. But one doesn't take over the other. Just because I'm influenced and just because I have environmental factors doesn't remove from me that I still have personal responsibility. I still have to do things in a certain way, um, or else there's going to be specific consequences. We have several teachers in here, um, those who've been uh, teachers for a while. What has the shift been in regard to your relationship with parents and interactions with them uh, in relationship to their children. Anyone want to comment on that? Yes. See, I'm not a teacher in a school, but I knew this was the case. She said, the issue for many parents now with their children in school is, my kid would never do that. Or my child is... Whatever. They're so brilliant, I can't imagine why you would give them a bad grade, right? Or, you know, the problem is that you're just not doing what you need to do as a teacher to 
make sure that all these 30 kids in your classroom are being uh, disciplined properly or taken care of the way that they should or whatever else. Who's at fault? It's not that we're placing any personal responsibility on a young child, but on always looking to the system, to the student, or, or to the teacher. Never the student, right? Sure. Exactly right. Because the easy thing, the thing that we inherently desire in our flesh is to not have to be responsible, right? I think the Bible points to that. Our desire in life is to be able to point the finger at other factors, at other people, and to not have to look at ourselves because that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to have to admit when we fail or when we've fallen short or when we have done something or not done something that we ought because that takes a raw honesty before others and before the Lord. Uh, I can't believe for a second your mom ever treated you unjustly. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, I'm sure you deserved it. <laughs> a loud bark. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, uh, let me ratchet this up a little bit more. Um, where this goes in terms of postmodern thought. Now, I'm not going to read this quote because, to be very honest, it gets extremely vulgar. And my wife told me last night, under no uncertain terms, may I say anything that this quote says. So I will explain it to you. Uh, No, that's a lot of... That won't even work. It won't even make sense. Um... One of the moves, and this is just one area where we'll talk about, is the move towards postmodern feminism. And so think of this whole idea of blame shifting, of not taking personal responsibility. So one prominent postmodern feminist said something along the lines of any sexual interaction that takes place between a man and a woman, regardless of whether or not it is... um, agreed upon, and in fact, she's talking in the context of, um, of a marital relationships where you have two consenting people who love one another. But at the end of the day, she said that any sexual encounter between a male and a female is by, uh, is akin to a brutal act of rape because you have a man asserting his physical influence and power over a woman. So, again, think of the factors involved there. You have consenting consenting individuals, two adults, even two married adults, and yet, no matter what happens, this normal, this what society calls normal relationship at the end of the day, should be seen, no matter what, no matter how, as a man asserting his dominance over a woman. Okay, that sounds radical, but it's not going to take long for you to just read the news or to listen to some ideas of 
uh, what's being said in our culture today to recognize that this kind of thinking is very influential. Right? When, uh, what's the whole idea behind, I'm going to step in it here. What's the whole idea behind saying things like, believe all women? Is, is there a problem with that fundamentally that no matter what, when a woman makes an accusation that we just believe them? Okay, what does the Bible teach us? Again, we need to go back to Scripture. What does it tell us? What do the Proverbs tell us about that? Steve just said, it teaches us, okay, when I hear one side of a story, it sounds good, right? That's what the Proverbs tell us. Solomon teaches us that. It sounds good, but until what? Until I hear the other side of the story. Oh, Wait. So now this idea that I just believe you because you're a woman? Look, I have great women in my life. Wonderful, godly women in my life. And yet, there's something I know about them because at least three of them live in my house. They sin too. <laughs> I, I know, it's funny, Quinn, but it's true. The two little ones more than the older one, but she's got it in her, I promise. <laughs> right? There's a reality about human nature, whether you're a man or a woman. We sin. And if there's anything to be gained by sinning, it's ratcheted up all the more, especially if we, have, we are not under the influence of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Right, so the very notion that we should believe all women simply because they're women takes nothing into account with regard to human nature. Right, we need to hear the facts, right? The facts need to come in, right? It's, it's an argument for convenience. But again, if I've moved away from looking at things with any form of objectivity because I don't want to admit objectivity because that's the death kneel to my whole worldview, then what? Then everything, depending on the circumstances, is going to be up for question. So now we can call evil dictators victims of Western civilization. We can call uh, married women uh, victims of the patriarchy because their husbands are asserting dominance over them, and God forbid they would actually have to have children. Oh, that's talk about the worst thing that could happen, right? Uh, a postmodern feminist, the worst thing that's ever happened in the world is that God created them to have children, according to them. So, um, so that has all kinds of implications as well. But, um, this idea, this whole idea of power, authority structures, all of this, uh, this became a very popular thing um, that the postmodernists really uh, keyed in on. So there's one I mentioned his name before, Michel Foucault. He was very famous um, in terms of postmodern thought. And he started to study uh, through postmodernist lens, various power structures in Western society. So he wrote several books. Uh, one was an, an analysis of how uh, prisoners were treated. Uh, one looked at how uh, society thinks about mental illness. And then one was the history of uh, human sexuality. 
and uh, that book actually never was finished because Michel Foucault uh, died beforehand of AIDS because he was engaged in rampant homosexual activity. So you can imagine what the book is like. Um, In the end, Foucault concluded that in every instance where authority is exercised over an individual, uh, that scientists, psychologists, doctors, clergy members, they are the ones that are determining what is and what is not normal behavior, and so the culture's acceptance of whatever uh, is actually going on in a person um, is, uh, is not looking at them as a person who naturally comes up with these things, but we only denounce it because the power structure is telling us to denounce it, if you will. So you committing a certain crime, it's not, it's not because what you did is actually wrong. It's because the authority structure tells you it's wrong. Right? Or that behavior that you're exhibiting, it's not a psychological deficiency because that's what it actually is. It's because the power structure is telling you that it is. That behavior you're involved in or the way that you said that or did that, that's not sinful. You only think it's sinful because a clergy member told you it was sinful. That's the way of working through that. Now, is is there anything at all true about what's being said? Okay, in what way? Right, so there are certain laws that we follow simply because they are in place and we have a responsibility to follow those laws and ultimately we do that because we don't want to deal with the consequences. But those laws are arbitrary based on what the society decides is good and right for them, right? So, yeah, in that case, we do things simply because the authority tells us to, right? Yeah. Sure, so, and we, in general, will willingly submit ourselves to those because we see, uh, hopefully, that it's reasonable and good for the collective whole, right? We want, we want to do things that are good for the collective whole, yeah. So, going back to your question, obeying the law because it's provided by Jesus. Yeah, excellent, good. As we think about this from a biblical worldview, authority is in place. It does exist in our lives, and we have a responsibility to submit to that authority, and that is on many different levels in our lives, right? If, uh, if you want to test this, um, please don't, but if you wanted to, I would uh, suggest that maybe you try and go tell your boss what you really think about them tomorrow and see how that goes. Um, some people can't do that, but um, they may be their own boss. So go to some other authority in your life and see how that goes, right? It's not going to go very well, right, Virginia? Yeah, and so how do, you, how do you govern a people who may not be motivated out of the altruistic motives that we hope they would be motivated by? or by a a desire to honor God with our lives. Now, hopefully as Christians, we're obeying the authority that the Lord has put in place in our lives because ultimately we want to honor the Lord. But let's be honest, our our motivation to do certain things uh, in some ways is not 
as significant as it is in other ways. And sometimes those things are motivated simply out of not wanting uh, to have to face the consequences uh, if I do go against. That's absolutely true. And that's why, um, that's why we talk about, well, if things aren't enforced, then uh, wh- what's the, why would we expect anyone to uh, follow that? Because there is no consequence, therefore I'm just going to do that. So uh, think of that in terms of, of parenting. You can tell your child all day long, if you do that, I'm going to spank you. But if you never spank them, what's your kid going to do? Keep doing it. Right? And in fact, it'll get worse and worse. And so, that is, again, human nature. Now, while there is this reality of authority that exists in our lives, is it that we look at what we identify as criminal behavior, or what we identify as mental insanity, or what we identify as sexual deviance? Are these things ideas that we have simply because people in authority have told us so? Do we inherently believe that to be the case? Good. There, uh, you're going to be hard-pressed to find any society that exists in the world, anywhere, as advanced and, and uh, as advanced as it may be, or as primitive as it may be, that doesn't have laws in place to govern it, based upon what we understand to be God's moral law. You can go in the middle of nowhere, where a people group has never had any exposure to anyone else other than their own people for thousands of years, and they have laws about how to uh, punish others when they murder someone. Why? Because the law of God is written on their hearts. And so you see, this isn't about some governing authority telling me, don't do this or there will be punishment and therefore I don't do it. Ultimately, it's about the fact that God's law is on our hearts. And so Foucault wanted to look at this and say, well, the only reason we do that is because we've allowed ourselves to be victims of civilization. When in reality, God's telling us, no, you are, you are being influenced by what I have given to you because I'm your creator. And as your creator, I have formed your heart in a certain way. And part of how I formed your heart is to have a conscious understanding of what my law is and how it is to function. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, that our, uh, that's an interesting thought. That our consciences are so grieved by suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness that many people are driven to a place of madness to where not living seems more reasonable than living. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So, uh, what gives us laws and rules and regulations? Uh, not just government, but institutional authorities, a boss at work, a doctor at the doctor's office, a pastor in a church. Yeah, so what you have is, obviously, any society you're going to, again, you're going to go to, you're going to see inconsistencies in an application, and Paul talks about this in Romans, right? That there is a sense in which, as we come together and determine how we will be governed, that we 
um, if we're not influenced ultimately by the truth that God has given to us, then we are going to, uh, we're going to undermine uh, what he has commanded at some point. There's going to be inconsistencies there in the suppression of that truth. Um, but ultimately, I think, in general, what we can see is, uh, is certainly a consistent desire to uphold what we have screaming at us from our conscience. You know, people will tell you all the time, well, I raised my kids to know the difference between right and wrong. Okay, well, that's good, but how do you know what's right and wrong? Where does that come from? How do we have any sense of what that is? Well, it's not just because someone told me it was right or wrong. Maybe some things are, and that's okay. I would argue that that's good. Um, what might be right or wrong in my house may not be right or wrong in your house. Uh, so we have, uh, we have local, if you will, local provisions, uh, and they get very local in your own home. Uh, but in terms of a society functioning, uh, we have the laws in place that we have, hopefully, only and no more than, which is unfortunately not the case anymore, but than those that are consistent with the moral law of God. Uh, so this whole idea, this whole idea of power structure is something that the postmodernists really dug their heels on. Um, and not only these things we've talked about, and I'll end here, they took this as far as the clothes that we wear, the, uh, the things that we do in our hobbies and our recreation, the types of jobs that we take, the things we watch on television, the people we vote for, uh, all of these kinds of things, um, all of these we do not because we want to do them, but because we are told to do them. So you didn't put the clothes on you put on today because you like them and because you uh, like the way they look and feel and everything else. You did that because the authority told you that this is what you're supposed to like. That's the mentality. That's the idea. So what does a biblical worldview say to that? How does a biblical understanding respond to that? So we will, uh, we will jump into that uh, from there uh, next week, and we'll talk more about deconstructionism. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much again for our time together. We're grateful for your kindness toward us. We're grateful for your love, for your mercy. We're grateful, Lord, that as we think about these ideas, uh, that you have taught us your word, and in knowing your word, uh, that we can uh, seek to think about ideas, to consider them in light of uh, the Bible, and uh, seek to apply what is good and right and true according to the Bible, and not to be taken up into the ideas of men. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to continue to think biblically, to continue to apply the Bible um, consistently, and in doing so, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives, that your church would be strengthened, that your people would be built up and instructed and equipped to live faithfully in this world uh, as we live in uh, always have lived in uncertain times. And so we pray, uh, Lord, that now you would prepare our hearts as we gather for worship, that you would be pleased with all that is said and done here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.